Chapter Seven of the Short Stop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The Short Stop by Zane Gray. Chapter Seven. Mitty Maru. Chase. You hung bells on em yesterday. Among the many greetings Chase received from the youngsters swarming out to the grounds to see their heroes whip-wheeling, this one struck him as the most original and amusing. It was given by Mitty Maru, the diminutive hunchback who had constituted himself mascot of the team. Chase had heard of the boy and had seen him the day before, but not to take any particular notice. Let me carry your bat. Chase looked down upon the sad and strange little figure. Mitty Maru did not exceed a yard in height. He was all misshapen and twisted, with a large head which was set deep into the hump on his shoulders. He was only a boy, yet he had an almost useless body and the face of an old man. Chase hurriedly lifted his gaze, thinking with a pang of self-reproach how trifling was his crooked eye compared to the hideous deformity of this lad. Three straight from Wheeling is all we want, went on Mitty Maru. We'll skin the coal diggers all right, all right, and we'll be out in front trailing a merry ha-ha for Columbus. They're leading now, and of all the swelled bunches I ever seen. Put it to us for three straight when they was here last, but we got a bad start. Then I got sick and couldn't report, and somehow the team couldn't win without me. Yesterday was my first day for I don't know how long, since Columbus trimmed us. "'What was the matter with you?' asked Chase. "'Ah, nothing. Just didn't feel good,' replied the boy. "'But I got out yesterday to see what you done to Kenton. "'Say, Chase, you takes mighty long steps. "'It ain't much wonder you can cover ground.' Chase modified his pace to suit that of his companion, and he wanted to take the bat, but Mitty Maru carried it with such pride and conscious superiority over the envious small boys who trooped along with them that Chase could not bring himself to ask for it. As they entered the grounds and approached the door of the clubhouse, Mac came out. He wore a troubled look. "'Howdy, Mitty. Howdy, Chase,' he said in a loud voice. Then, as he hurried by, he whispered close to Chase's ear, "'Look out for yourself.' This surprised Chase so that he hesitated. Mitty Maru reached the dressing-room first, and turning to Chase said, "'Something doin' all right, all right.' This soon manifest, for as Chase crossed the threshold, a chorus of yells met him. Here he is. Now say it to his face. Salver, jollier, you mushy soft soper. Then terms of opprobrium fell about his ears so thickly that he could scarcely distinguish them, and he certainly could not understand why they were made. He went to his locker, opened it, took out his uniform, and began to dress. Mitty Maru came and sat beside him. Chase looked about him to see Winters lacing up his shoes and taking no part in the vilification. Benny was drunk. Meade's flushed face and thick speech showed that he too had been drinking. Even Havel made a sneering remark in Chase's direction. Chase made note of the fact that Thatcher, Cass, and Spear, one of the pitchers, were not present. "'You're a Molly,' yelled Meade. "'Been making up to the reporters, haven't you? Fixing it all right for yourself, eh?' Playin' for the newspapers? Well, you'll last about a week with Findlay. What do you mean? Chase demanded. Go on, 
shouted the first baseman. "'As if you hadn't seen the Chronicle.' "'I haven't,' said Chase. "'Flash it on him,' cried Meade. Someone threw the newspaper at Chase, and upon opening it to the baseball page, he discovered his name in large letters. And he read the account of yesterday's game, which, excepting to mention Cass's fine pitching, made it seem that Chase had played the whole game by himself. It was extravagant praise. Chase felt himself grow warm under it, and then guilty at the absence of mention of other players who were worthy of credit. "'I don't deserve all that,' he said to Meade. "'and I don't know how it came to be there. "'You've been savin' the reporter, jollyin' him. "'No, I haven't. You're a liar.' "'A hot flame leapt to life inside Chase. "'He had never been called that name. "'Quickly he sprang up, feeling the blood in his face. "'Then as he looked at Meade, he remembered the fellow's condition "'and what he owed to Mac and others far away, "'with the quieting effect that he sat down without a word.' A moment later Benny swaggered up to him, and shook his fist in his face. "'I'm a-goin' to take a bing at your one skylight and shut it for ye.' Chase easily evaded the blow, and rose to his feet. "'Benny, you're drunk.' Matters might have become serious then, for Chase, undecided for the moment what to do, would not have overlooked a blow. But the gong ringing for practice put an end to the trouble. The players filed out. Mitty Maru plucked at Chase's trousers and whispered, "'You ought have handed him one.' Chase's work that afternoon was characterized by the same snap and dash which had won him the applause of the audience in the Kenton games, and he capped it with two timely hits that had much to do with Findlay's victory. But three times during the game, to his consternation, Mac took him to task about certain plays. Chase ran hard back of second and knocked down a base hit, but which he could not recover in time to throw the runner out. It was a splendid play, for which the stands gave him thundering applause. Nevertheless, as he came to the bench, Mac severely reprimanded him for not getting his man. "'You've got to move faster than that,' said the little manager, testily. "'You're slow as an ice-wagon.' And after the game, Mac came into the dressing-room, where Chase received a good share of his displeasure." "'Didn't you say you knew the game? "'Well, you're very much on the pizzazz today. "'Now, next time you hit up a fly ball, "'don't look where it's going, but run. "'Keep on running. "'Fielders muff flies occasionally, "'and some day running one out will win a game. "'And when you make a base hit, "'don't keep on running out to the foul flag, "'just because it's a single. "'Always turn to second base "'and take advantage of any little chance to get there. "'If you make any more dumb plays like that, They'll cost you five each. Got that? Chase was mystified, and in no happy frame of mind when he left the grounds. Evidently what the crowd thought was good playing was quite removed from the manager's consideration of such. Hold on, Chase, called Mitty Maru from behind. Chase turned to see the little mascot trying to catch up with him. It suddenly dawned on Chase that the popular idol of the players had taken a fancy to him. Say, Cass told me to tell you to come by his room at the hotel after supper. I wonder what he wants. Did he say? No, but it's to put you wise, all right, all right. Cass is a good feller. Me and him has been friends. I heard him say to Mac not to roast you the way he did. And I want to put you wise to something myself. Mac's stuck on you. He can't keep a smile off his face when you walk up to the plate. And when you cut loose to peg one across, he just stutters. Oh, he's stuck on you all right, all right. 
Boys, will you look at that wing? He keeps saying. And when you come in, he says you're rotten to your face. Don't mind Max roasts. All of which bewildered Chase only the more. Mitty Maru chattered about baseball and the players, but he was extremely reticent in regard to himself. This latter fact, in conjunction with his shabby appearance, made Chase think that all was not so well with the lad as might have been. He found himself returning Mitty Maru's regard. Goodbye, said Mitty Maru at a cross street. I go down here. See you tomorrow. After supper, Chase went to the hotel, and seeing that Cass was not among the players in the lobby, he found his room number, and with no little curiosity, mounted the stairs. Come in, said Cass, in answer to his knock. The big pitcher sat in his shirt sleeves, blowing rings of smoke out the open window. Hello, Chase. Was waiting for you. Have a cigar. Don't smoke? Throw yourself round comfortable, but say, lock the door first. I don't want anybody butting in. Chase found considerable relief and pleasure in the friendly manner of Finley's star pitcher. I want to have a talk with you, Chase. First, you won't mind a couple of questions. Not at all. Fire away. You're in dead earnest about this baseball business? I should say I am. You are dead set on making it a success. I've got to. Chase told Cass briefly what depended on his efforts. I thought as much. Well, you'll find more than one fellow trying the same. Baseball is full of fellows taking care of mothers and fathers, and orphans, too. People who pay to see the game and keep us fellows going don't know just how much good they're doing. Well, Chase, it takes more than speed, a good eye, and a good arm, and a head to make success. How so? It's learning how to get along with managers and players. I've been in the game for ten years. Most every player who has been through the mill will let the youngster find out for himself, let him sink or swim. Even managers will not tell you everything. It's baseball ethics. I'm overstepping it because, well, because I want to. I don't mind saying that you're the most promising youngster I ever saw. Mac is crazy about you. All the same, you won't last two weeks on the Finley team, or a season in fast company, unless you change. Change? How? Now, Chase, don't get sore. You're a little too soft for this business. You're too nice. Lots of boys are that way, but they don't keep so and stay in baseball. Do you understand me? No, I don't. Well, baseball is a funny game. It's like nothing else. You've noticed how different the players are off the field. They'll treat you white, away from the grounds, but once in uniform, look out. When a professional puts on his uniform, he puts on his armor. And it's got to be bulletproof and spike-proof. The players on your own team will get after you, abuse you, roast you, blame you for everything, make you miserable, and finally put you off the team. This may seem to you a mean thing, but it's a way of the game. When a new player is signed, everybody gets after him, and if he makes a hit with the crowd, and particularly with the newspapers, the players get after him all the harder. In a way, that's a kind of professional jealousy. But the main point I want to make clear to you is the aggressive spirit of the players who hold their own. On the field, ball-playing is a fight all the time. It's good-natured, and it's bitter earnest. Every man for himself. Survival of the fittest. Dog-eat-dog. Then I must talk back? Strike back? Fight back? Exactly. Else you will never succeed in this business. Now, don't take a bad view of it. Baseball is all right. So are the players. The best thing is that the game is square, absolutely square. Once on the inside, you'll find it peculiar, 
and you've got to adapt yourself. Tell me what to do. You must show your teeth, my boy, that's all. The team is after your scalp. Apart from this peculiarity of the players to be eternally after someone, I'm sure they like you. Winters said you'd make a star if you had any sand. Thatcher said if you lasted, you'd make his batting average look sick. One of them, I think, has it in for you, just because he's that sort of guy. But I mention no names. I'm not a knocker. And let me tell you this. Never knock any lad in the business. The thing for you to do, the sooner the better, is to walk into the dressing room and take a punch at somebody. And then declare yourself strong. Say he'll punch the block off anyone who opens his trap to you again. And after that? You'll find it different. They'll all respect you. You'll get on better for it. Then you'll be one of us. Play hard, learn the game, keep sober, and return word for word, name for name, blow for blow. After a little of this, chewing the rag becomes no more to you than putting on your uniform. It's a part of the game. It keeps the life and the ginger in you. All right. If I must, I must, replied Chase, and as he spoke, the set of his jaw boded ill for someone. Good. I knew you had the right stuff in you. Now, one more thing. Look out for the players on the other teams. They'll spike you, knee you, put you out if they can. Don't ever slide to a base head first as you did today. Some second baseman will jump up and come down on you with both feet and break something or cut you all up. Don't let any player think you're afraid of him either. I'm much obliged to you, Cass. What you've told me explains a lot. I suppose every business has something about it a fellow don't like. I'll do the best I can. And hope I'll make good, as Mitty Maru says. There's a kid with nerve, exclaimed Cass enthusiastically. Best fan I ever knew. He knows the game, too, poor little beggar. Tell me about him, said Chase. I don't know much. He turned up here last season and cottoned to the team at once. Someone found out that he run off from a poor house or home for incurable boys or bad boys or something. There was a fella here from Columbus looking for Mitty. But he never found him. He has no home, and I don't know where he lives. I'll bet it's in some garret somewhere. He sells papers and shines shoes, and he's as proud as he's game. You can't give him anything. Baseball, he's crazy over. So is my brother, and he's a cripple, too. Every boy likes baseball, and if he doesn't, he's not a boy. Chase left Castorius then and went downstairs, for he expected to meet several of the young men who boarded with him and who had invited him to spend the evening with them. They came presently and carried him off to an entertainment in one of the halls. Here, his new friends, Harris, Drake, and Mandel, led him from one group of boys and girls to another and introduced him with evident pride in their opportunity. It was a church fair and well attended. Chase had never seen so many pretty girls. Being rather backward, he did not very soon notice what was patent to all, that he was the young man of the hour, and when he did see, he felt as if he wanted to run away. Facing Mac and the players was easier than trying to talk to these gracious ladies and whispering arch-eyed girls. Ice cream was the order of the evening, and as long as Chase could eat, he managed to conceal his poverty of speech. But when he absolutely could not swallow another spoonful, he made certain he must get away. When four girls in white vivaciously appropriated him and whirled him off somewhere, his confusion knew no bounds. His young men friends basely deserted him and went to different parts of the hall. He was lost, and he gave up. 
From booth to booth they paraded with him, all chattering at once. He became vaguely aware that he was spending money, and attaching to himself various articles. He caught himself saying he would like very much to have this and that, which he did not want at all. The evening passed very quickly, and like a dream. Chase found himself out of the bright lights in the cool darkness of the night. He walked two blocks past his corner. He reached his room at length, struck a light, and saw that he had an armful of small bundles and papers. He made the startling discovery that he had purchased four lace-fringed pincushions, a number of hand-painted doilies, one sewing basket, one apron, two match-scratchers, one gorgeous necktie, and one other article that he could not name. Discomfited as he was, Chase had to laugh. It was too utterly ridiculous. Then, more soberly, he began to count the money he had, in order to find out what he had spent. The sum total of his rash expenditures amounted to a little over five dollars. Five dollars! ejaculated Chase. For this truck and about a gallon of ice cream? That's how I saved my money? Confound those girls! But Chase did not mean that about the girls. He knew the evening had been the pleasantest one he could remember. He tried to recollect the names of the girls and how they looked. This was impossible. Nothing of that wonderful night stood out clearly. As a whole, it left a confused impression of music and laughter, bright eyes and golden hair, smiles and white dresses. The next morning he wrote to his mother and told her all about it, adding that she must not take the expenditure of his money so much as an instance of reckless extravagance as it was a case of highway robbery. In the afternoon, on the way to the ballpark, he met Mittie Maru and related last night's adventure, asked him if he could use a pincushion or two. "'Not on your life,' cried Mittie Maru. "'Sorry I didn't put you wise to them church sociables. They jobbed you, Chase. Sold you a lot of bricks. You want to fight shy of that bunch, all right, all right. Don't you ever go to church?' "'I went to Sunday school last fall. Miss Marjorie, she was in the school. She got me to come.' She's a peach, sweeter than a basket of red monkeys. She was all right, all right, but I couldn't stand for the preacher, and some of the others, so I quit. And every time I see Miss Marjorie, I dodge or hit it up out of sight. What was wrong with the preacher? He's a young'un. I think preachers oughter be old. He fusses with the women folks too hard. He speaks soft and prays to beat the band, and everybody thinks he's an angel. But, oh, I ain't a knocker. Wait for me after the game. Sure. And Chase, are you going to stand for the things Meade calls you? I'm afraid I can't stand it much longer. If anything, Chase's reception in the dressing room was more violent than it had been the day before. Nevertheless, he dressed without exchanging a word with anyone. This time, however, he was keenly alert to all that was said and to who said it. All sense of personal affront or injustice, such as had pained him yesterday, was now absent. He felt himself immeasurably older. He coolly weighed this harangue at him with the stern necessity of his success, and found it nothing. And when he went out upon the field, he was conscious of a difference in his feelings. The mist that had bothered him did not come to his eyes, nor did the contraction bind his throat nor did the nameless uncertainty and dread oppress his breast. He felt a rigidity of muscle, a deadliness of determination, a sharp, cold confidence. 
The joy of playing the game, as he had played it ever since he was big enough to throw a ball, had gone. It was not fun, not play before him, but work, work that called for strength, courage, endurance. Chase gritted his teeth when the umpire called play ball, and he gritted them throughout the game. He staked himself, and all he hoped to do for those he loved, against his own team, the opposing team, and the baseball world. He saw his one chance, a fighting chance, and he meant to fight. When the ball got into action, he ran over the field like a flash. He was everywhere. He anticipated every hit near him. He scooped up the ball and shot it from him with the speed of a bullet. He threw with a straight, powerful overhand motion, and the ball sailed low, with terrific swiftness, and held its speed. He grabbed up a hit that caromed off Winter's leg, and though far back of third base, he threw the runner out with time to spare. He caught a foul fly against the left-field bleachers. He threw two runners out at the plate, and that from deep short field. He beat out an infield hit. He got a clean single to right, and for the third time in three days he sent out a liner that by fast running he stretched into a three-bagger. Findlay had clinched the game before this hit, which sent in two runners, but for all that, the stands and bleachers rose in a body and cheered. The day before, Chase had doffed his cap in appreciation of their applause. Today, he did not look at them. He put the audience out of his mind. But for all his effort, speed, and good luck, he made an unfortunate play. It came at the close of the eighth inning. Wheeling got runners on second and third with only one out. The next man hit a sharp bouncer to Chase. He fielded the ball, and expecting the runner on third to dash for home, he made ready to throw him out. But this runner held his base. Chase turned to try and get the batter going to first, when the runner on second ran right before him toward third. Chase closed in behind him, and as the fellow slowed up, tried to catch him. Then the runner on third bolted for home. Chase saw him and threw to head him off, but was too late. In the dressing-room, after the game, the players howled about this one run that Chase's stupidity had given Wheeling. They called him Woodenhead, Saphead, Spongehead, Deadhead. Then Mac came in and delivered himself. Put the ball in your pocket. Put the ball in your pocket, didn't you? Counting your money, wasn't you? Thinking about the girls you was with last night, hey? That play cost you five. See? Got that? You're fined. After this, when you get the ball and some runner's hitting up the dust, throw it. Got that? Throw the ball. Don't keep it. Throw it. When the players' shouts of delight died away, Chase turned on the little manager. What'd you want for fifteen cents? Canary birds? He yelled in a voice that rattled the windows. He flung his bat down with a crash, and as it skipped along the bench, more than one player fell over himself to get out of its way. Didn't I say I had to learn the game? Didn't you say you'd show me? I never had that play before. I didn't know what to do with the ball. What do you want, I say? Didn't I accept nine chances today? Mac looked dumbfounded. This young lamb of his had suddenly roused into a lion. Sure, you needn't holler about it. I was only telling you. Then he strode out amid a silence that showed the surprise of his players. Winners recovered first, and turned round red-faced and began to bob and shake with laughter. What? did he want for fifteen cents canary birds ha 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 in another moment the other players were roaring with him end of chapter seven